Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Get, to, get around most all of the posts in the room. All right, so we are in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 again. And uh, going to jump right in. So uh, at the first part of the chapter, uh, we begin with Paul telling us um, what our state was in the past. Uh, it says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you weren't walked and once walked. And he goes through and he talks about our, our former status uh, before we were Christians. And uh, then he, he said, Okay, now look at how we are. And we've been made alive uh, in Christ. And so today, uh, as we go through probably verses 11 through 17-ish, um, we're going to get a similar feel going to look back and look forward. And this time, though, the focus is not so much individually, but more corporately. All right. So just keep that that idea in mind that that um, the focus is going to be on on this this group of believers. Uh, and of course, we know uh, from our previous uh, uh, weeks that that Ephesians was written to uh, probably uh, a group of churches that had formed in and around uh, the city of Ephesus, which was uh, definitely a big city of its day, not only in population, but in terms of influence with politics and with commerce. So uh, these were uh, churches that were uh, composed of a mixture of uh, Jews and Gentiles and uh, uh, all Christians, uh, but uh, they had certainly different backgrounds and, and uh, a very cosmopolitan uh, point of view, most likely. So let's, uh, let's jump on in because um, the, the issues as far as religious differences that we'll talk a little bit about today, of course, are, are very timely, uh, just as they were 2,000 years ago. So uh, verse 11, we'll, we'll jump on in. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So in verse 11, we have this uh, little reminder uh, by Paul saying that um, you Gentiles were once called the uncircumcision. And we know uh, this echoes what we studied in Galatians, right? That was uh, the big topic back then was uh, the difference between uh, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And, you know, should Christians be forced to be circumcised? That was the, the big Galatian controversy. And, and here Paul brings to mind that um, the Jews used to call Gentiles the uncircumcised as a almost a curse word. That was the way they referred to the Gentiles in a derogatory, uh, in a derogatory way. So this was um, Paul bringing that up and say, you know, remember Gentiles, what you used to be called by the Jews? Uh, you were called uncircumcised. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, prior to Christ, of course, um, we, uh, or Gentiles, were not included in the direct covenants that God had between himself and the Jews. Um, you know, every time the big covenants were laid out, um, and we know, we've looked at various covenants 
in our studies, we've talked about the covenant. You know, there's covenants with uh, Adam and Noah and Moses and David and so forth. Abraham, of course, is probably the most common one we refer to. But there was never an obvious, at least, uh, a mention of the Gentiles. But we know that there were hints that God's redemptive plan was going to involve more than just the Jews, but it wasn't explicit. And that's what Paul is referring to. Um, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We do have, um, like I say, hints in the Old Covenant that, that there was uh, a bigger redemptive plan. The most obvious uh, verse, I think, is in Genesis 12.3. It says, uh, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those, this is God talking, of course, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this all the families of the earth is, is the hint that, that God's got more people in mind than just uh, his, uh, his uh, descendants of Abraham, but um, it wasn't explicit. Uh, Paul goes on in, in verse 12, it says, Hope and without God in the world. Uh, previously, uh, you know, the Jews uh, claimed, and rightly so, uh, an exclusive sort of relationship with God. They had been given the law. They had been given uh, the prophets. They had been given uh, the temple and the sacrificial system. And, and the only way to become in any way rightly connected with God was through that system. There was provision for, um, for non-Jews, for Gentiles, to convert, but even then, um, it, it, you could say that they were uh, still on the periphery. They weren't um, as included as, as those that were uh, Jews by, by heritage were. Um, but now, again... Uh, but now is always a, a good thing, because now we're looking forward. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus. We talked about how many times Paul is using this phrase, in Christ. And if you haven't done this exercise yet, it's good to start with Ephesians chapter 1 and just take your little highlighter, your underline, and underline all the places that Paul lists the word in Christ. And again, the big theme over these past uh, several weeks has been all the blessings that we have in Christ. So in some ways, our, our focus today uh, is yet another one of the blessings that we have because we are in Christ. And, and I think you'll see what, what the particular blessing of today is. So previously... Uh, we were uh, not in Christ, but now, verse 13, we are in Christ. Um, we were once far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This near and far, uh, Paul's going to uh, talk again. You'll echo that in our last verse, and, and I'll make another comment about that. But before Christ, we were far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And, of course, one of the consistent things you can count about uh, on about Paul is, is the implications of what happened on the cross. 
Yes, our sins were forgiven. Yes, we're adopted into God's family. Uh, the, all these blessings. But this other thing about being in Christ is this, and he's starting to build into his topic for the, the day, and that is this reconciliation that's happening, that you were once far off, now you've been brought near. The blood of Christ not only did something between you and God, as he's talking, but he's fixing to move into this concept of there's also something that happened that should have happened that affected between us and each other, uh, between us and the, and the other, I should say. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us both one. Who is the both there? Him and us. All right. So you could look at it, I guess, a couple different ways. Uh, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And so there is this connection that we have because we are in Christ, right? Uh, I'm not sure what entity this is. If, if we're in Christ, I mean, it's not like we can make Christ better than he is, but somehow... Certainly he's in us. I'm not sure how to explain that mystery. So the both one. Uh, but also I think we get this idea of uh, the Jews and Gentiles. You know, there were two separate camps, but now both camps are now one in the sense that uh, even cultural Jews aren't coming to Christ by the sacrificial system anymore either. Right, they, that's not that's been done away with, and you see this in verse um, fifteen, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and I'll say something about it in a second. But um, this, um, you see, this where it says um, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This echoes this earlier phrase in verse eleven. At one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh. So at one time, this concept of circumcision, which we've talked about somewhat graphically in the past, was something that was done physically in the flesh, was something that the Jews were boasting about, that the Gentiles were feeling badly about. And here we have something that was done in the flesh that was dividing people. And now Paul makes a point that Jesus did something in the flesh that now is unifying people. Uh, like so many examples, something that humans have used to, to kind of separate the redemptive power of the blood of Christ is now taking away that area of prejudice and creating some common ground. Jesus. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we know that... Um, uh, that there was a wall, uh, a series of walls, you might say, uh, in the temple, right? We know that there was the central area that only the high priest could go, the Holy of Holies, and we know that then beyond that there was a holy place where, where Jews could go, and then several other came out there, but there was this court of the Gentiles. So you could technically go in the outer reaches of the, the temple if you were a Gentile, but you couldn't go past the court of the Gentiles. So uh, some people think, and I think it makes sense, that this is one of these walls that are falling down. One of the walls that are falling down. Um, 
you know, I don't know if any of you guys watch these uh, DIY shows, these, uh, you know, rehab shows and everything. And what's one of the most common things that they'll do when they go to fix something? Going to take out a wall, right? And one of the things that uh, has been a topic of discussion at our house is, you know, we've got this one particular wall. Do we want to take this wall out? And, and Merritt sees this clear space between the kitchen and the den, and I see two stories above this structural load-bearing wall, and um, I see engineers coming out, and calculations, and I-beams, and steel, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, so we have different perspectives about this wall coming down, but uh, it's probably going to come down. Um, <laughs> um, so we, we can all pray about that. Um, but... Uh, but walls coming down is, is a good thing in that context, and, and it's a good thing in, in this context as well. Uh, there's certainly a place for boundaries and so forth. That's another topic. But in this particular case, this Jesus removing the dividing wall of hostility is a good thing. Now, verse 15 says something that those that would want to treat the Scripture um, with uh, with maybe um, an inappropriate way, uh, my key on this. It says verse fifteen. Um, how, in other words, picking up the thought. How did how did Jesus uh, do this? It says by abolishing the law of commandments. So it brings to mind this. You know, people like to look at contradictions. You know, and there's this this verse in Matthew where we have Jesus himself saying. I have not come to abolish them, that is, the law and the commandments. And here Paul is saying, Jesus abolished the law and the commandments. So what's, what's up with this, right? And so people that would want to look at contradictions and so forth would, would maybe use this as, as an example. And I think the key to understanding this is if we read the whole thing. It says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay? So if we think about law, there's, um, there's a lot we mean by that. And this law and ordinances, that's referring to the, the sacrificial system, right? All the rituals, the ceremonial cleansings, uh, all of the things that had both been prescribed by God in Leviticus, the, uh, you know, how the sacrifice was going to be made, and the ritual purifications, and the cleanliness, and the uncleanliness, and all this sorts of stuff, that was all the ordinances. Uh, that was done away with. Of course, the greatest example is Peter, right? And he, all, we know about all the, all the food and dietary restrictions that the, that the Jews had to uh, abide by. I mean, they couldn't even have crawfish. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Um, but when Jesus came, you can have crawfish now, right? I mean, that's if you need more evidence about the wonderful gospel. I mean, I, I think I could rest my case right there, but um, all of that was done away with. But did that do away with don't kill, don't have other gods before me, don't cheat on your wife, don't covet your neighbor's ox? I mean, did it do away with all that? Well, no. I mean, that is this moral law. That is the truth. That is this part where Romans, uh, where Paul talks about Romans. Uh, everybody knows kind of via your conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit, um, we, this, 
right and wrong because there's this moral law that that God has put down and so Jesus didn't abolish all that of course but he did do away with the ordinances he certainly satisfied as it said in the Matthew verse he certainly fulfilled the law and that was the key there so this is not a point of controversy this is pretty easy to deal with and and that's the way you should deal with um, with uh, conflicts or apparent conflicts in scripture. You deal with it just like you should deal with conflicts with people, right? Um, Ken Sandy, the Peacemaker Ministries, he says, you know, when you're talking with someone, or especially if, heaven forbid, you're trying to hash something out via email, he said, always assume that the statement can be taken in the best possible light. In other words, give benefit of the doubt. Is there a good way that this could be taken? And if so, assume that the person is doing that. Well, with Scripture, if you see some things that are contradictory, assume that there's a reasonable way to reconcile this. Don't assume that there's some discrepancy here. Uh, ultimately, God is the author of all of the Bible, and of course, he is consistent. And very often, by working out those apparent inconsistencies, you actually come away with a fuller understanding of both passages. So just... Your assumptions and your predispositions uh, do have an, an effect here. All right, where are we? Verse um, 15, I guess. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So when... When two people are both repentant before God, the offenses between each other become much less important, right? Because no matter what your brother has done to you, it pales in comparison with what you did to God. And so the more clearly I see my own sin, the less important my brother's offense to me becomes. All right? One of the things about, you know, staying in Scripture and in tune with, with who God is, we're not supposed to uh, necessarily wallow in our badness. We can certainly celebrate the new life that we have in Christ, but it should make, make us sensitive to the sin that's in us so that we don't do what the Pharisees did and where the... The speck in the brother's eye was much more obvious than the law coming out of their own eye. Um, when you get a good view of your own problems, um, you have a lot more grace with other people and their problems. Uh, that's just that's just true. And uh, this whole concept, you know, we we take offense so easily nowadays. And um, you know, Daddy's got a great talk he does on taking offenses and the rights we claim, and do we really have the rights we think we do anyway? It's a good, a good topic. Um, but it says one of the ramifications, it says Jesus created in himself one new man in place of two, making peace, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You know, the, the, the ramifications of what happened on the cross are just... You know, the, the applications of that are just so numerous, and this is definitely one of them. Verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you 
who are far off, in peace to those who are near. And this echoes uh, a passage in Isaiah 57. Uh, I have seen his ways. This is uh, the prophet talking, I guess, on behalf of God. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Um, him. Uh, that's Isaiah 57, 18. Uh, God has always been about redeeming and taking those who are far and bringing them near. Uh, it's always, you know, this this whole tone and atmosphere of grace that we've been talking about, uh, the blessings that we have in Christ, it's all been about bringing us close to himself, reconciling us to him, and reconciling us to each other. You know, um, it's just uh, this, this peace that would have been very unusual back then, right? Yeah, just very... Um, I guess uh, there was just not a spirit of unity back then, right? There was no unifying hope, and this is something that that Christians can rally about. So let's look at at this passage now that we've kind of walked through it and just to highlight a couple of things. Uh, I think one of the things that you can take from this passage is you can start to see Paul is is developing the groundwork for some themes that are going to be important later in the book. Um, One is this two becoming one thing, this this two people, now one people. He's he's talking about the church, right? He's talking about this new body of of people that we know is, is the church. And he's going to have something to say about that as we walk further through the book. Um, some people have said, even though the word church is not mentioned that often in Ephesians, that this passage may make um, some of the best foundational work for uh, establishing the church and the importance of the church. And that any church where there's um, a lot of um, division needs to go back and, and read this passage. He's also laying the groundwork for this concept of unity in the church. If you turn a page over to to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A lot of people say the first three chapters of Ephesians is laying the foundation in chapter 4 and going forward is... Uh, the application of that. So here's this big I therefore. He goes on in verse um, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope and so forth, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So he's building a groundwork here in chapter 2 of what is the basis of all this unity. The basis of this unity that Paul is calling people to is because of how we were each reconciled to Christ. Those old distinctions, any uh, 
uh, leftover feeling of superiority of the Jews has been done away with, and any leftover feeling of uh, inferiority on the Gentiles should be done away with. They can all claim equal footing because of what Christ did. So that's, those are certainly a couple big themes. Um, I should say that unity is, gets confused nowadays, right? So among Christians, there shouldn't be a whole lot of disunity. In fact, you could probably attribute any disunity to just the various sins that we all have, right? Uh, we, you know, our own junk gets in the way. I, I'll say this too. If you're privileged enough to rub shoulders with Bible-reading, God-fearing Christians of other denominations, you won't find nearly as many distinctions as you might think. The way they live out their life in Christ starts to look a lot like the way the other one does. Um, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, and in spite of that, came out okay, <laughs> depending on who you ask. But I went to a Christian college that was not a Baptist college, but there were about 30 different types of Baptists there. It was wonderful. I had things I took for granted that I had to go back and reread in a different light, but there was tons of unity there. Uh, now, the converse is, sometimes the world tries for unity and really gets it wrong. On certain distinctions, there should not be unity with other faiths that aren't Christian, right? Um, I'm sure there were some well-intentioned folks at Duke University in recent months trying to reach some unattainable goal of unity. And did you hear what they were going to do? They were going to repurpose the, the chimes or the speaker or whatever in the steeple of the campus chapel so that it would broadcast the Muslim call to prayer. I don't think that's the, that's the type of unity that Paul was talking about. Um, Franklin Graham and many others kind of called him on this and said, look, you know, this is just not, you know, this is a historically Methodist college, of course, which is very secular now, but um, I'm, I'm sure through the generations of people who were donating their money to Duke, they weren't anticipating that their money was somehow going to be used to broadcast Muslim call to prayer, which, you know, if you don't, I think you guys know this, but we don't worship the same God, right? Allah is not just another name for Jehovah. That's a, that's a non-God. That's a different God. That's a God with a little g. Um, we should be careful. Should we be cordial and friendly and present the gospel in a great way? Absolutely. But we, we need to be cautious for unity just for the sake of unity uh, you can you can be nice and still disagree about things. Um, so we need to be cautious about that. Let me give you a little tool for understanding this passage um, that one commentator had. And you could just jot this in your margin. Uh, it says a useful outline is the word, to use the word without. 
Um, the King James says, um, at one point, you were without Christ in, in uh, uh, verses 11 or 12. Um, and our old status was we were without Christ as Gentiles. We were without citizenship. We were without the covenants. We were without hope. We were without God. You could turn all those around after Christ. We're in Christ. We're grafted in as citizens. We're part of that redemptive covenant. We have hope and we have God. So the things that we are without and the things that we, that we have. Um, one other interesting thing, and I think this is just maybe your thought for the week. One commentator said in verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, blah, blah, blah. He talks about that. He made the point that this is the only place in the New Testament where we're, where we're asked to purposefully remember what things used to be like. I thought that's, that's interesting. So... Uh, it's not that we're never asked to do it. We're only asked to do it once. So I think, you know, and this is the same guy who said, forgetting what lies behind, I look, I press forward, right? So here's another, you say, well, which is it, Paul? You know, are we supposed to remember? Are we supposed to forget the past? Um, you know, he's making a point. But it is good at times to reflect where you came from, right? And to use that to, as a basis of gratitude. Um, and gratitude really should infuse the life of the Christian because it's, it's recognizing the grace that, that got you to where you are. And when you're grateful, you're not hostile. When you're grateful, you, you pursue unity. When you're grateful, a lot of other things don't matter. Um, so think about that. It's okay to look over your shoulder and to use that as a way to praise God for what he's done. I should probably quit. Comments? Sorry I didn't give you more time. All right. And uh, let me just close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and for this great group of folks. We thank you that um, you, uh, maybe even in this class, are helping us to break down a few barriers. Uh, uh, among the generations that we're not divided by age, we're not divided by background, and you are bringing us toward unity. And we do thank you for the work of Jesus, and we thank you for the many blessings that we have in Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.